Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have Elizabeth Lash Quinn with us today. She is professor of history at Syracuse University, author of many things, including the books Black Neighbors and also Race Experts. Her new book is Ars Vita, The Fate of Inwardness and the Return of the Ancient Arts of Living, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Lash Quinn. Thank you so much. It's really an honor. So, uh, first, a, a gigantic question. Sure. How how can one, what does one have to do to start thinking of living as an art? Well, probably start by unlearning everything that's being taught around us <laughs> in this culture. Um, and I, I mean that seriously, that we are bombarded with messages of all kinds through popular culture, through advertising, through our mainstream institutions of all kinds, schools, and you just go on and on. And those messages aren't necessarily um, conducive to living life in the way, the richest way possible, where life involves a pursuit of meaning and truth and lots of good things, like love and goods, in other words, not, not goods as in commodities, but goods as in you know, uh, moral aspirations, ideals, and the like. So first, um, I think we have to stop what we're doing, get some silence and some slowness in our lives, and then start rethinking and um, start contemplating. There's a lot of talk about meditation because that's um, involved in a lot of the these sort of therapeutic self-help practices of our times. And there's nothing wrong with meditation, but meditation practices usually involve moving things out of your mind. And that's, that's a great start, moving things that aren't important out of your mind. But contemplation usually has something that one is contemplating. So I think we need more contemplation of what we do, of the world around us, how the world is structured, how we structure our day, and our lives, what are we pursuing, why are we pursuing those things, and is there a better way to do it? So, um, you know, start by stopping, and then um, introduce some silence and slowness and some contemplation, and really sort of put the screeching brakes on, call everything to a halt, and um, start over, back to the drawing board. I think we're in 
we're in terrible trouble, and and people are just living lives that aren't very examined, and this leads to disastrous results personally and collectively. So those things. And then uh, what I would love to see is the introduction of some great work of some kind. It could be a work of art. Um, It could be music, painting, sculpture, just looking at some of the architecture around us, Um, a great novel, a work of philosophy, maybe one of Plato's dialogues, Hmm. Um, anything like that, because I do think that everything stems from one experience that is just a staggering experience of beauty and meaning and truth. It could be in a church or a temple uh, or synagogue. Um, It could be a conversation with a friend, but really just taking something in the world as immediate where, you know, it just really counts and matters and then contemplating it and seeing where life goes from there. I think one such experience usually leads to another and that to another and another and that leads to a transformation of uh, one's disposition toward the the brief life that we are given. You know, I I wasn't going to ask this, but what you said a moment ago prompts it. Uh, mm. Do you want to give me an example in your own life, your own biography of this experience, a single experience of, of beauty and, and sublimity that might uh, that, that you might want to mention? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to give as many examples as anyone ever wants to hear about that. That's partly what I'm working on, I think, um, in this book and also what I'm working on now, yeah. um, is how do we even begin to express such experiences? And Without conveying the excitement of that, um, it's very hard for people who who have no um, no leaning or, or no expectation of that to know what on earth you're talking about. So um, for me, one of the things was, of course, um, you can tell by this book, um, but listeners might not know if they, if they haven't read it, um, that Plato, reading Plato was, was completely transformative, uh, I must say, that Plato changed my life, and if not for Plato, there would be no Ars Vitae, the book. Um, but after Plato, I read this other author who was around 500 years later, but he was also in love with Plato, and that was Plotinus, the first great Neoplatonic philosopher. And it sounds also arcane and you know specialized and all of this. No, not at all. It's completely accessible to anyone um, who can read, or if you can't read, then to someone who will read it to you, um, or a um, you know an audio version. Um, Plotinus has these kind of mini essays called Enneads, and um, I was just reading these, and I realized. I'm reading in a whole different way. I had, you know, been very inspired by things I'd read in the past and truly loved lots of things. But when I read Plotinus, I realized I am euphoric. <laughs> I am reading these words and I am in a state of complete elation. Hmm. And then I realized I there's a whole different state one can get in. Um, for me that day, it was the words of Plotinus because of the way he was writing about being in the world. And it just, um, you know, really captured what you feel at, at your 
at your happiest, I guess, the happy is a terrible word, it's not helpful, at, at, at your feeling, at those moments when you feel the most at one with everything around you, you know, you, you might feel like you blend into nature, you feel at one with the people around you, or with the universe, the cosmos, the stars, you know, it's that feeling of the sublime. And for me, it was very intellectual because he's a really, you know, he's a thinking person. But this is someone who wrote centuries and centuries ago, but who captured, you know, things about what he was observing that spoke directly to me hmm. in my own time. And so this is what we lose when we we lose the intellectual tradition or, or when we, you know, dismiss it as somehow less significant um, than um, works that are just really current um, in the moment today. Those works are current and in the moment um, and can speak to you in an unbelievable way. You say that we're seeing a resurgence at the present time of interest in yes. those ancient works that, that really talk about the good life, uh, philosophies of life. What are, what are some of the major examples of that? of that resurgence happening? You see it um, everywhere. There's so many different examples. Um, the revival of classical curricula and, and classical, the founding of new classical schools, that's one of them. Um, there are movies um, that deal with these subjects either directly, like Gladiator, which expressly talks about so stoicism, mm -hmm. and then indirectly, like one example I analyze in the book is Eat, Pray, Love, that, that whole phenomenon. Um, and I think that that um, obliquely or really unconsciously refers to Epicureanism, which is a mm. huge influence, I think, now, cultural influence, but it's usually not thought of that way. So these schools of thought are all around us, swirling all around us, and there's a lot of interest that is expressed interest particularly in stoicism i think we see that with all kinds of um you know online uh, fora and institutions like um the stoic week the practice of stoic week where all kinds of stoic events go on all over the world and um so those are just some of the examples mm -hmm. um but really uh it's everywhere it's in in the architecture there are new, new movements in architecture that are bringing back sort of neoclassical motifs um in art um and it just keeps on going you'll you'll see it. i think people will see it once they realize it mm -hmm. but um but i'm trying to get them to think about it in a different way not as um just one sort of of thought that you might hop on and then that's the train that's going to lead to self-help and self-improvement and therapy and things because as soon as these are hijacked for that purpose um, as, as sort of self-help therapies they can be very useful I think in their own right and if so if they help people with struggling um, things they're struggling with and suffering and they save people's lives fantastic but they were part of a rich conversation in antiquity about different ways that we can think about leading our lives 
And it's that conversation that I'm really interested in bringing back. So even though I see signs of interest here and there, um, and this interest is proliferating, no doubt, um, I think that what I'm arguing for is that we don't just use them for another as another excuse to become siloed off from one another as people already are and say well you know because i'm a new stoic therefore i'm you know automatically against all of these people who think differently but i'd rather us take them all seriously intellectually as part of a conversation about how to live yeah you you spend some time commenting on on sort of a modern uh or at least modern premises about arts of living, with the thesis of the, quote, triumph of the therapeutic. Could you, we see that phrase often, could you just rehearse that thesis and and then give us your take on, well, what you really believe is this, this therapeutic approach to living really isn't, isn't working very well? Sure. The... Um great sociologist Philip Reif wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic in 1966, and he argued that we had seen a transition over many years, um, even centuries, to from uh, religious um, sort of communal ways of life where there was a shared sense of what was sacred, and because of that, it helped people understand why they would want to give up some of their own desires in order to live with other people. Um, And so this shifted to a therapeutic mentality where it was all about the individual um, and the individual's feelings, uh, and especially of of, um, freedom and release. So the shared sense of what was sacred vanished and instead what became the the ultimate um, orientation was toward the individual self and the self's desires and needs so it's, it kind of helped explain some of the you know let it all hang out um, pursue your own wishes and desires uh, focus on the self and self-help and uh, therapy for the self so that one would you know smooth over difficult um, feelings and, and times and get to happier states and things like that. So there's much good, of course, in individual therapies that help people function who are having trouble even you know, dealing with the problems in their lives. It's not trying to criticize all people who are actually helping people get along, but it's really talking about this cultural sensibility that um, prioritizes individual instincts, even of the most fleeting kind, and um, gets people to pursue those. And um, often, you know, it's part of profit-making that um, you can really tap into people's psychological needs and wants and wishes and emotional urges of the moment and things, and you can make great amounts of money off of that. So it's, um, it's kind of the dominant mode in a way. And... Um, so, but for me, part of the therapeutic really involves um, manipulation uh, because, and this was true of Philip Reef, he had some beautiful lines about this, that if you give up any kind of aspiration toward the sacred or toward anything transcendent that might have meaning for us, 
um, collectively and help explain why we do rein in a lot of our own urges and things, then you um, you give up on the idea that you can have any relations in this world that are not um, ab- about manipulation, because when it's all about the self, then it all then life becomes about manipulating others in order to get what the self wants. And and manipulation is very much um, assumed now, assumed to be, you know, a, a way of, of operating. And it doesn't have to be that. We can find ways not to live in um, manipulable relations with one another. What is the difference between therapy and therapia? Um, Therapeia, uh, the the ancient Greek yes, um, yes. term, yeah, the way that so that that's an important question because um, ancient philosophers did not, um, you know, eschew all all forms of uh, you know feeling good or um, feeling in harmony or at peace, etc. The Stoics were very committed to bringing some kind of emotional balance and and peace within and that's partly why they they said you know get rid of the things that really don't concern you and that you can do nothing about and then focus on the things you can so that's the the form of um therapia that the stoics had in mind and and the the handful of schools of thought that i look at in this book they really kind of stemmed from the Socratic tradition. And so there's a lot of Platonism sort of woven into all of them. Um, but um, particularly um, Platonism has an idea that um, moral goodness and beauty and truth, really beauty recast as and truth as well, as moral entities or elements of life, um, those bring a kind of, and, and here we wouldn't even want to use the modern word of therapy because it's so far from that, um, but they they bring something to life that transforms life um, and makes it into the richest thing it can possibly be for humankind. So then modern therapy is usually shorn of all of those high-flown ideals and such of goodness, truth, beauty, um, sublimity, and um, at least in the late 20th century, um, I think there's a little bit coming back into even even you know, clinical therapy now, where there's a little more allowance for that people might have some religious leanings of some kind, and that might be part of any any actual you know day-to-day therapy um, that they that will help them. But um, but I think the modern therapeutic culture is so oriented on the self and it has lost the sense of the self's main quest being about goodness as though that is not even a human impulse um and that's what i think we've we've lost at our great peril and part of why we see uh society so fragmented around us and what is the new gnosticism the new Gnosticism is 
Um, I think I see it in things like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code and the movie based on it and such. But we see it in movies like The Matrix, which is very famous and it has a, a number of um, sequels and things. Um, and it's a it's not necessarily exactly like the ancient movement of Gnosticism, which was a religious movement and um, having to do with several different um, religions. But it's a view of the world that it's a modern sensibility that people like Eric Vogelin had seen already in movements, um, fascism, fascism, for instance, and other um, expansive movements that try to explain the entire world and everything in it as a sort of cosmic um, battle between forces of good and forces of evil with no room for nuance no room for personal change, uh, for things like reconciliation, um, for forgiveness, anything like that. And uh, as though it's written in stone, which which one you are, are you part of us or them, that kind of thing. And um, so you see it um, in the the critics of the modern therapeutic, who many of whom saw the therapeutic sensibility as a kind of modern Gnosticism, that it was um, a uh, a way of thinking about the world as not just fallen and as, you know, with redemption as a possibility, but as basically no good, that the, the creator God was uh, suspicious, was evil, and there was a divine force beyond that, a kind of disembodied, divine force and the embodied world was um, all bad and it was uh, an illusion and only a handful of people would ever wake up from that illusion and find their way back to something really great and um, I see that in in a lot of transhumanism sort of the movement that says that there are things beyond human life and people who you know donate their, their, well, not donate, they, they have their bodies uh, frozen, hoping that they will awake in some other time period uh, beyond the human and, and people who think that there's a computerized consciousness that will outlive human beings and, and many other movements that sort of, um, I think, degrade and, and undervalue and devalue the physical world and, and the physical experience, the physical experience of being human. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, you, you, you spend time speaking about Marcus Aurelius, and you use the phrase, his mathematics of feeling. Mathematics of feeling. How would you think that, that achieving a kind of mathematics of feeling, of, of moderating oneself 
in, in, in something, balancing oneself like that. Is that really hard at the present time? Because, as you say, so much of our input is about stimulation and excitement. Uh, is it easier to achieve than people might think? I think so, but maybe, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Um, it's, it's probably pretty challenging now that I think of it, now that you put it that way. It's, it's true. We, we live in a world of constant you know, stimulation with um, distractions. The, the world, the, the, you know, the, the new technologies have made that um, er, you know, omnipresent. So it could be that it's harder than it seems. Um, but I think that uh, once, once people sort of set out to do something about it, there are clear steps that one can take, and reading Marcus Aurelius would be a great beginning. Um, he has all kinds of things distracting him. He's writing from the middle of a war, and he's emperor, and so he has to solve a lot of things and decide a lot of things. And he's, you know, clearly um, conflicted inwardly about a lot of things. It's but, and yet there's a feeling of peace that comes out of reading the meditations. Um, that he he does have a set of guidelines, and he sets it out at the beginning of that book. Um, his his feeling of um, debt to the people around him, where he got a lot of these guidelines, and then he tries to hold up his daily experience to those guidelines, and is able, I think, um, to some degree. Of course, no one's um, able to do it all the time or perfectly, but to reflect on various different urges that he's having or things that are happening happening around him that could distract from the the you know the the goods that he's trying to aim at in life. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned peace, peace of yeah. mind uh, a moment ago and that that's always one of the primary goals you you, you mentioned that in in reference to say epicureanism but you also say not just peace of mind and also you quote firm conviction so so the peace of mind doesn't come from sort of draining yourself of you know strong belief no no you 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 have convictions and you hold them firmly correct yes yes absolutely um something very lacking in our time there seems to be not just a lack of principle, but a lack of uh, idea that there is such a thing as principle and that one can live by principle and that one should, um, and, and, that, and a kind of faith that one can live by principle. It's really shocking when you, when you think, you see the, you know, the news cycle and commentary um, on it, and you realize that there's a whole different conception of time or something where there's no sense to account for something today that would have been a violation of one's you know most loud um, expressions of principle so-called principle a year ago or five years ago so that kind of constancy of principle is part of what uh, i think all of these ancient greco roman um, schools of philosophical thought were striving for 
or maybe even just assumed that that we would try to be um, consistent in our principles. But yes, that principles are something that are very powerful and actually um, life-saving. That how how do we get through some of the great suffering that that is the lot of the human the the human condition if we are lucky to keep enduring in our lives and and if we have our life go on we will encounter extreme emotional suffering of some kind that's just the way yeah. we are you know on this earth that death exists and if if that and um, if that exists then our lot is going to have suffering in it so how do we handle that and if we don't have faith in principle in in living to some kinds of ideas or ideals um then we have so little to go on and that i think is a travesty that that is not leaving to um younger people um the the tools of even living the most you know basic successful as in you know, a human life as in just getting from one day to the next let alone thriving yeah. so uh yeah. last question elizabeth you refer to something called the uses of uselessness what do you mean by that yeah i love that phrase um because that that goes back to the idea that um in the therapeutic culture everything's about manipulating everyone else to get what we want to you know that that's okay somehow um if we're just thinking about our own needs and wants that uh, then it's okay to try to use other people and and to use things it's a functionalist way of thinking about ideas and um you know goods as in as in material goods but also um any virtues that anyone might think of that that they're all they're designed to be used in our push for self-aggrandizement for the self's wants and needs and not um for anything transcendent or any higher good of any kind or any sense of something sacred so it's ironic to me and to other um you know, other people who've, who've thought about this, that what appears to be um, u- useless is actually the most useful thing for human beings. And that because we crave, I think it's inherent in us, that we crave some sense or glimpse of goodness, of transcendence, of a, um, a universe outside of us and inside of us where it's not all about manipulation and it's not all about what we want and need, but there's something greater, a greater experience of love and truth and beauty that actually make us feel better than any of these other things promise to do. The book is Ars Vita, The Fate of Inwardness and the Return of the Ancient Arts of Living. Professor Lash Quinn, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. 
Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.